Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. I'm also grateful for the presentation earlier. One of the things that I'm not going to do is to do an exegetical study of Proverbs 9. I'm going to deal with Proverbs 9, but not in that way. So what was presented, I was concerned about that, but what was presented was a much clearer and more effective way of giving you the content of the chapter than I could ever have given you. So I appreciate that. Uh, we have been in central Pennsylvania for a while, and we're not permanent residents there, but we spend a good bit of time there. And one of the surprising things to us is the number of squirrels that are in Pennsylvania. They're cute. They're often fun to watch. Joy has concluded they probably have more fun than any other animal that God created. At the same time, they can be a real pain. We like to put food out for birds, and those squirrels get it every single time. I even invested in a book at a thrift shop close to us. The book was called How to Outwit a Squirrel. <laughs> now, I only paid a quarter for it, and I'm sure it was worth that, but the conclusion was a bit disappointing. It said, in essence, you probably will never outsmart a squirrel. No matter what you do, give it enough time, they'll come up with a way to get around it, and they'll get the food that you put out for the bird. So we sort of gave up on that. And now we just watch them in the trees and in the yard. A couple of weeks ago, I saw a squirrel running across the fence between us and our neighbor, and he had a huge black walnut in his mouth. He jumped from the end of the fence onto a tree, then he jumped from that tree onto another tree. This time the branch he was on was very small and limber, and the squirrel ended up upside down on that branch. As I watched him in one move, he, he somehow, I don't know how he did it, but he ended up on top of the branch again and never missed a beat toward his destination. I was amazed. I thought if I'd had that kind of agility when I was an athlete, I would have been a world beater. Now back problems and the nerve damage from all of that has left me with such bad balance, I have trouble walking across a room sometimes and certainly navigating a couple of steps up to a podium. As I reflected a little more, I thought, imagine what it would be like to have that kind of agility in my spiritual life. Living in our dysfunctional and chaotic world often leaves me feeling like I've been turned upside down on the branch. Uh, when I fill out a form, sometimes I have options, male and female, but then another uh, says other. Sometimes there are even more choices. An internet site I saw included over 20 different possibilities for people who deny that gender is binary. Suddenly I'm upside down on that branch. The same is true when I hear what many people in our culture say about racism or sexual morality, what constitutes justice, what an ideal society ought to look like. As I used to hear in Texas, the world it is a changing, 
but in my lifetime at least never in the radical ways and with the speed that it's changing today. As the people of God, we know that the world is not our friend. Paul tells us, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Instead, we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. But what does that mean for the church today? In our situation is certainly not unique. I read recently that the church's struggle with the world has always been how to fit in without being swallowed up. The wisdom in Proverbs is really a powerful resource for times like ours. It can help us in a hostile world. <clears throat> it, it can offer a shalom in the midst of chaos and turmoil. It can equip us so that we can effectively honor God and glorify him as we struggle with a culture that's just spinning out of control. At least that's the way it sometimes feels. So <clears throat> I was asked to speak on Proverbs 9, and as I indicated to you, I'm not going to do an exegetical study of the chapter. Part of that is because the purpose of the chapter is really more literary than it is theological. The, the chapter act, acts as a bookend. You start with chapter one, you've got chapters one through eight, and then chapter nine reiterates some of the same themes that have been emphasized throughout the section, and it, it sort of brackets it and, and holds it together. And so Proverbs 9 repeats, repeats several important themes that we see in chapters 1 through 8. One is our personal responsibility to choose the way of wisdom and to reject the path of folly. The second is the importance of the fear of the Lord. The third emphasizes really a defining difference between the wise person and the fool. The wise person is open to instruction, to correction, even to rebuke, and often even seeks it out. The foolish person wants no advice from anyone. After all, when you know everything, what need is there for advice? And so counsel, advice, correction that comes to a foolish person, you can expect rejection, <clears throat> sometimes hostility, as chapter 9 points out, sometimes even blows. So it's the foolish person's arrogance <clears throat> and pride that prevents them from ever obtaining wisdom. The humility of the wise person allows that individual to continue to grow toward full maturity and wisdom. Chapter 1 begins by noting the benefits the material is, is supposed to bring to those who take it seriously. And then 1-7 states the central theme of the book. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The same theme appears in chapter, 10, or chapter 9 and verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The entire book of Proverbs ends in chapter 31 
And chapter 31 gives us a description of a wise person. And the non-negotiable characteristic of the excellent woman described there is that she fears the Lord. So this idea of the fear of the Lord is the thing that holds everything in the book together. It, it's an overarching theme. It, it underlays and is the foundation for all the ideas and the practices that Proverbs commends to us. The fear of the Lord, of course, is found elsewhere in the Old Testament. It serves as a foundation on which much of its theology rests, makes it clear that a right relationship with God is a prerequisite for gaining the biblical wisdom that's offered in Proverbs. I'm going to give you a, a simple definition of the fear of the Lord. It involves an understanding of who God is and an understanding of who we are. And then it is life lived in a way that reflects those two points of reality. The first chapter of Genesis gives us a, a good understanding of what's involved here. Think about who God is as presented in Genesis chapter 1. He is the creator of everything that exists. He is the sovereign Lord who created and who are, who are human beings. We are creatures. So God is the creator. We are creatures. Now, we're creatures made in the image of God, but that does not change the fact that we are dependent on our creator. God takes particular delight in human beings, but again, that does not change the fact <clears throat> that we are dependent on him. Th that defines the essence of our relationship with God. He's the creator, we are the creature. That's the way God designed the world to work, and <clears throat> that's essentially what the fear of the Lord uh, presents for us. The early chapters of Genesis also present to us what happens when people refuse to live in the trusting dependence on the Lord that reflects God's order. The man and the woman refused to obey God. They chose to violate the one prohibition that God had given them and disaster is what resulted. Um, it, it introduced, the human rebellion introduced chaos into the world. And so the call to fear God is in essence an Old Testament gospel call, even though no new, no new covenant details. I would suggest that the fear of the Lord be thought of as a continuum rather than a single point. At one end of that continuum is really fear and terror. Think about what happened at Mount Sinai. The people are there. They know that God is present on the mountain. It's covered in, in clouds and fog, all kinds of sounds emanating from it, lightning, the, the rumbling everywhere, earthquakes. And the people are warned not to get close to that mountain. And they are warned that any animal that touches the mountain will be destroyed. 
that, that, if I were there, that would terrify me. And in fact, Moses tells the people, God has done this so that you may fear God and obey his commandments. So the, the terror part is a part of what the fear of the Lord includes. But, but it's a continuum, and at the other end of the continuum is what we would call love for God. Certainly the deep piety that we see in a person like the author of Psalm 119 or <clears throat> the prophet Isaiah, uh, the, they were people who loved God. But I think most Old Testament people would have said about them, now that's a person who really fears the Lord. However the relationship with God begins, it it grows into a reverential awe and respect for God that is at the heart of the love that God desires from his people. So the search for wisdom must begin with the fear of the Lord and the process of becoming wise continues in that same trusting dependence. But, but what exactly is wisdom and why is it so important for the believer. Well, you see it in Proverbs 9. Lady Wisdom offers delights of a lavish banquet to any who come to her, who, who accept her invitation and embrace wisdom. And the idea there is that they will experience life as it was meant to be, as God designed it to be. Dame Folly, on the other hand, offers an invitation that leads to Sheol and to death. And so people must choose which path they will follow. And along with their choice comes very, very different outcomes. Now there are various definitions of wisdom, but I'm gonna suggest a simple one that I think captures the essence of what wisdom is in Proverbs and throughout the Old Testament. Wisdom is skill in living according to Yahweh's order. This perspective rests on the idea that God created everything. He created the world to work in a certain way. Wisdom is essentially understanding what those ways involve. <clears throat> and so this includes things like physical principles, gravity, thermodynamics, the way the human body works, but it also includes things like relationships, words, dealing with people. It includes moral and ethical things such as justice, kindness, and basic civility. The claim of Proverbs is that if we live in harmony with the way God designed the world and people to work, things will go better for us than will be the case if we try to function contrary to that order. Now Ecclesiastes makes the point that this is a fallen and complex world and it's full of all kinds of things that we will never fully understand and that we can't control. Life is characterized by sin-generated dysfunction and we have to live with people who are fallen creatures. 
Even so, life that is lived according to God's order, that is according to wisdom, will work better. And so wisdom smooths our way through life. One person has said that wisdom is lubrication for life. It reduces the friction we experience as we live in the world. Some years ago, we had to replace a dishwasher. We bought a new one along with the parts that were needed to install it. Things were going well until I tried to connect the drain hose to the, to the fitting on the bottom, uh, the drain fitting. I, I could not get that hose to go onto the fitting. I tried everything I knew. I was frustrated. Finally decided I needed to go out and buy a, a hose with a larger diameter. My neighbor saw me coming out of my house and said, how are things going? I told him. He said, well, before you go to the store, let me just suggest that you try something. He said, take a, a bowl of warm water, put a few drops of dishwasher detergent in it, and then stick the hose in that solution for a minute or two, then try to put it on, see if it helps. I did what he said. <clears throat> and the hose went on the fitting like it was made for it. My problem solved, and all I had done was to reduce the friction between the hose and the fitting. Wisdom can do the same thing for us as we deal with issues in a complex and fallen world. One of the things that <clears throat> many people find in chapters one through nine and also you will find in the Proverbs that you will see in 10 through 31, many of those uh, principles have a rather secular feel to them. That is a bit off-putting to many, quote, spiritual, unquote, people. The principles, though, do reveal something about the way God designed the world to work. Almost every time I taught Proverbs, about the middle of the semester, someone would say to me, Dr. Curtis, all this seems like common sense. Why do we have to study this kind of stuff? My answer was, it seems like common sense because it is common sense. And given that God chose to include this in inspired scripture, I think it, God is in favor of common sense. And it also seems that it is his will for believers to know and practice such things as they live in the world. So I've suggested to you that wisdom is skill in living according to Yahweh's order. Well, how do we get wisdom? You've seen much of that in Proverbs 1 through 9. The first thing we have to do is choose the fear of the Lord and then live in that same trusting relationship with him. Life involves an almost limitless array of choices, and many boil down to choices between wisdom and folly. Sometimes they have to do with, with centrally important issues. Other times they involve rather trivial matters. We have to choose the things we do, the people we hang out with, the way we spend our time and money. The list is endless. Proverbs is clear, though, that even minor decisions should be made wisely and in ways that are consistent with our ultimate goals. 
small decisions persisted in over time can change our direction enough to de deflect us from our intended goal. Scripture plays an important role in this, in choosing folly and reject, or choosing wisdom and rejecting folly. Proverbs 1 through 9 makes the point. Psalm 1 reinforces the point. The first word in Psalm 1 is usually translated how blessed. It's not the normal word in Hebrew for pronouncing a blessing on someone. I might, though, use the word if I had been watching you. And as I see how you live, how you manage the affairs of life, and, and I'm amazed as I watch you. I see you in difficult, stressful situations, and I think, how, how does she do that? How can she respond in such compassionate and hope-filled ways when things are falling apart all around her? Or you see a person for whom things are going really, really well, and you watch them. They remain humble kind and sensitive to the needs of others. They seem to be largely unaffected by the vices that often attach themselves to wealth, power, and success. Again, you say, wow, how, how does he do that? How does he consistently exhibit such grace and balance given his remarkable circumstances? It's a word that reflects our response to an athlete who makes a spectacular play in an important game. Shake our heads in amazement and say, how did he or she do that? It reflects both amazement and admiration. Jesus actually uses the same word in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. And the claim is that living the way Psalm 1 or Proverbs commends or the way advocated in the Sermon on the Mount will produce the kind of person about whom others will notice with amazement and about whom they will express astonishment. Psalm 1 attributes this difference to delight in and regular meditation on God's instruction. There are many benefits that result from interaction with Scripture and putting it into practice. Scripture reveals to us who God is, what he desires from his people. Scripture protects us from the evils that are regularly promoted by our culture. Scripture informs us about God's values and purposes, and this understanding is essential as we have to choose between wisdom and folly. Not only does it involve a choice, but <clears throat> Proverbs 2 makes it clear that the search for wisdom demands much from the disciple. It's not for casual onlookers. It's not spectator sport. It requires the passion and the persistence of a search for hidden treasure. It's serious business, but the rewards are great and surprisingly, the outcome is assured if we just follow God's directions. Remember Proverbs 2, 4 through 7. It assures us that if you seek wisdom, searching for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. 
and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. Clearly, the wisdom that we're talking about here is not just a collection of sayings for our amusement. These are principles to be applied. They are things we must do, and this wisdom leads us into a deeper knowledge of God and to the kind of character transformation that Paul talks about in Romans 12. The passages like the one in Proverbs 2 make it clear that this formula for getting wisdom can be guaranteed because God is at work enabling those who obediently seek him to will and to do those things that please him. What we see here is what the New Testament calls sanctification. It is a work of God in which the believer cooperates or participates. Once we realize that these practical common sense things actually reflect God's will for his people, a greater urgency should attach to doing them. I suspect that our failure to do these things undermines the effectiveness of our witness to the world far more than our failure to dot the I's and cross the T's on some point of eschatology. Much damage is done from our failure to pay our bills in a timely way or constantly criticizing others, our incivility, our failure to treat others with whom we have serious disagreements with kindness and respect, all those things tarnish God's reputation. I mentioned earlier that wisdom is skill in living rather than some sort of theological or esoteric theological knowledge. I want to expand on that just a bit. Skill has more to do with application than it does with the accumulation of information and facts. Obviously, the application has to involve what is true and accurate, but skill represents a different paradigm than one would find normally in an academic setting. Skill characterizes people who actually can do things rather than people who just come up with theories or programs. When we think of skill, we think of athletes or musicians or artists or surgeons or craftsmen of various kinds. Well, how do people develop the skills that set them apart? It's not by reading everything that's ever been written on a relevant subject. It's not by watching videos of people who have the skill. They develop skill by practicing. Often they have mentors who work with them and experts who watch them and guide them toward improving until they're the best that they can possibly be. Think about a great tennis player like Serena Williams. Think about the time and the effort that went into developing her backhand or some other aspect of her game. She spent significant time developing the mechanics, getting everything just right. Then she has to reach the point where she does everything intuitively and can make split-second decisions about how to respond 
when a ball's coming at her at over 100 miles an hour. We develop skills in living, it seems to me, in exactly the same way. We must practice, practice, practice things that involve our words, the management of our emotions, the patience we need to show others our kindness directed toward others. All the kinds of things that Proverbs deals with on a regular basis. As Christians, we have powerful resources that help us in this. God's word and God's spirit work in us and for us, but as Proverbs and James make abundantly clear, wisdom is something we must do and we must practice. I once heard a Southern Baptist pastor say, you can be on the right road and still get run over if you just sit there. Many of us, I fear, are at a bare survival level when it comes to wisdom applied. We need to start where we are and get better and better. Some of us don't have a lot of time left to improve. Others have a whole lifetime ahead of you. Heed the exhortation of Ecclesiastes. Remember <clears throat> your creator in the days of your youth. Start now on the path of wisdom and become skilled craftsmen at it. One of my favorite quotes is Wayne Gretzky's response to a reporter who asked him what the secret of his greatness as a hockey player was. Gretzky thought about it a minute and he said, you know, I don't really have a secret. I just try to skate as fast as I can to where I know the puck will be. It seems to me that the church needs people whose divinely energized practice and passion to glorify God has made them experts at knowing where the puck will be in these days of uncertainty and chaos. It's wisdom that will help us develop the spiritual agility of that squirrel as we more and more find ourselves turned upside down on the limber branches of our crazy world. While the application of a proverb can sometimes be tricky, most of them are fairly clear and concrete and somewhat unequivocal. For example, don't answer a fool according to his folly lest you become like him. Or, it is a prudent person's beauty to overlook an insult. Or a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Or there's a, one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. I, I want to exhort you to practice such proverbs each day. I think obedience in practical matters, such as our speech or being careful to avoid debt, practice in those matters can actually help us with the more abstract spiritual principles that are the usual focus of the church. I want to close with a story of a young woman who made an interesting discovery in a Proverbs class. She told me her story in a final class essay. I know the story is anecdotal. It, it is not 
It's the experience of one person. It's not based on carefully selected samples and controlled research. It is, though, true, though I'm pretty sure that what I'm going to share reflects much more than just one person's unique experience. I suspect it reveals an aspect of biblical wisdom that's often overlooked in our theologizing and teaching. A traumatic experience when Sarah, it's not her actual name, was young, had left her with many fears, and she would wake up regularly at night with frightening nightmares. She said, I grew up in the church. I heard all my life about how important it is to have faith and to trust God. Various people told her that trusting God more might be a key to delivering her from her fears. But she said, I didn't know what that meant. Those concepts were so general and abstract that I couldn't really get my mind around them. I know God loves me and is with me, but I can't see him, and I really wasn't sure what it means to trust God each day or how you actually do that. She went on to say, studying Proverbs has helped me understand what it means to trust God. And this is how it happened. As we interacted with the early chapters of Proverbs, Sarah began to realize that trusting the Lord with all your heart often means something pretty concrete and practical. It means obeying God in the way we live and in the choices we make. It means seeing the practical things in Proverbs or the Sermon on the Mount as reflecting the way God designed the world to work and revealing important aspects of what God's will for his people involves. I gave several assignments in which I asked the students to choose a proverb to meditate on for several weeks. Then I asked them to write a short essay telling me what happened as a result. Sarah began to put these principles into practice. It, it began to change her speech, to change the way she interacted with friends and family, her attitude about material possessions, and the list could go on and on. She began to see <coughs> that doing what God says is the essence of faith. And she did these practical, concrete things in the obedience of faith. And as she did that, she began experiencing what Paul talks about in Romans 12 too. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. As she did this common sense stuff that Proverbs insists reflects God's will for us, she began to experience the reality that God's will is in fact good and acceptable and perfect. This helped her then to transfer from the practical and concrete more easily to the abstract things like God's promises of provision and protection. 
one group of verses in Proverbs 3 jumped out at her. In Proverbs 3.21, do not lose sight of these things. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. They will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely. Your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you'll not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Don't be afraid of sudden terror or the ruin of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence, and it will keep your foot from being caught. About the middle of the semester, Sarah began meditating on the ideas of sweet sleep and no fear. Toward the end of the semester, she said, Dr. Curtis, I cannot remember a night when I did not wake up with nightmares. Since I began reflecting on the promise of sweet sleep and God's protection a couple of months ago, I've not had a single one. Certain situations caused her to be extremely fearful. When she found herself in one of these settings, she would quickly retreat in fear. Toward the end of the semester, she found herself in one of those fear-inducing settings and began her instinctive retreat. For some reason, the words of Proverbs popped into her mind. Do not be afraid of sudden terror. The Lord is your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. This time, she kept reflecting on the words and with peace, continued to move on to do that which she knew God wanted her to do. Now, these experiences didn't turn Sarah into a fully mature person of faith or make her someone who abandons caution as she lives her life, nor did it give her complete mastery over all her fears. They were, however, significant steps on the path of trusting God more and becoming an example of what God's grace can do in the life of a person who trusts God. As a professor, I could never have planned an outcome like that for a Proverbs class. That was from beginning to end a work of God's spirit meeting a unique need in that young woman's life. I just happened to be there and share God's word from Proverbs, but I got to watch as God worked here and did it using largely practical common sense stuff to facilitate the process. What's the bottom line on all this? Work harder on your backhand? I can actually think of several better things than that, but I can think of nothing better to tell you than to read to you a couple of short sections from the material you've already been over in previous weeks. This 3,000-year-old advice captures it much better than I ever could. From chapter 2, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. 
or one from Proverbs 4. Get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget, do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Don't forsake her, she will keep you. Love her, she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, she will exalt you, she will honor you if you embrace her. And then a last one from Proverbs 4 as well. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech. Put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward, and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure. An old anonymous proverb captures what's in view here. Sow a thought, reap a deed. Sow a deed, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Living in a world determined to reject God's truth and thwart his purposes guarantees that we'll sometimes find ourselves upside down on some very fragile branches. A lifetime of embracing and practicing God's wisdom can transform us into skilled disciples who can maintain spiritual balance and equilibrium in even the most confusing and convoluted circumstances. Such mature wisdom will serve us well in terms of our own well-being, but more importantly, it will enable us to glorify God and to elevate his reputation before a, a watching world. Father, we thank you for your gracious love for us and for the wisdom that you reveal to us through the world you created and through scripture. Help us to diligently seek to know your truth and to practice it resolutely as we live in this fallen world. Thank you that you are with us always and for the work of your spirit as we seek to navigate a complex and often frustrating world. May we be good and wise servants of yours and glorify you with energy and skill.